This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of obstetric brachioplexopathy, specifically herbs and Klumpke's palsy, from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Obstetric brachioplexopathy is injury to the brachial plexus that occurs during birth as a result of stretching injury from a difficult vaginal delivery. Diagnosis is made clinically and depends on the nerve roots involved. Treatment can be observation or operative depending on the nerve roots involved, the severity of injury, and the location of the nerve injury. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, the incidence of obstetric brachioplexopathy is approximately 1 to 4 per 1,000 live births. However, this is decreasing in frequency due to improved obstetric care. As far as the anatomic location, it is often right-sided or bilateral. Risk factors include large for gestational age, otherwise known as macrosomia, multiparous pregnancy, difficult presentation, shoulder dystocia, forceps delivery, breech position, and prolonged labor. Moving on to etiology, the cause of obstetric brachioplexopathy is usually a stretching injury from a difficult vaginal delivery or, in some rare cases, reported following C-sections. Associated orthopedic conditions include glenohumeral dysplasia, elbow flexion contracture, clavicle and humerus fractures, and torticollis. Glenohumeral dysplasia will manifest with increased glenoid retroversion, humeral head flattening, and posterior humeral head subluxation. Know that this develops in 70% of infants with obstetric brachioplexopathy and is caused by internal rotation contracture, which will cause loss of external rotation. As far as elbow flexion contracture, the etiology is unclear, however, is likely due to the persistent relative triceps weakness, which receives contributions from C7, compared with the biceps, which receives contributions from C5, C6. As far as relevant anatomy, be sure to study the brachial plexus diagram on orthobullets.com or the Bullets app. In terms of classification of obstetric brachial plexopathy, the one to know is the Narokos classification. This is divided into four groups. Group 1 is Duchenne Herbs palsy. Group 2 is Intermediate Paralysis. Group 3 is Total Brachial Plexus Palsy. And Group 4 is Total Brachial Plexus Palsy with Horner Syndrome. So starting with Group 1, or Duchenne's Herbs palsy, the characteristics include paralysis of the deltoid and biceps, as well as intact wrist and digital flexion slash extension. The roots involved include C5 and C6. Group 2, or intermediate paralysis, will have the characteristics of paralysis of the deltoid, biceps, and wrist, and digital extension. These patients will have intact wrist and digital flexion. The roots involved include C5 through C7. Group 3, or total brachial plexus palsy, will have the characteristics of a flail extremity without Horner syndrome, and the roots involved will be C5 to T1. Finally, group 4, or total brachial plexus palsy with Horner syndrome, will have a flail extremity with Horner syndrome and the roots involved is C5 to T1. Now, let's go over the general presentation of obstetric brachioplexopathy. Symptoms include lack of active hand and arm motion. On physical exam, specifically the upper extremity exam, may reveal an arm that hangs limp at the side in an adducted and internally rotated position. These patients may also have decreased shoulder external rotation, and the affected shoulder subluxates posteriorly. In terms of provocative testing, be sure to stimulate the neonatal reflexes, including the moro, as well as the asymmetric tonic neck and vajta reflexes. Pain with gentle shaking of a flail arm may indicate pseudoparalysis from infection or fracture rather than nerve palsy. The Hospital for Sick Children Active Movement Scale, or AMS, Muscle Strength Grading System states that full range of motion with gravity eliminated, that is a score of 4, must be achieved before higher scores may be assigned. 
Moving on to imaging, radiographs may be useful for evaluation of clavicle or humerus fractures. However, they have limited utility in an infant given minimal ossification of the humeral head and the glenoid. An axillary view can be obtained to evaluate the position of the humeral head if the patient is older and suspicion is high for a joint subluxation. Myelography slash CT myelography slash MRI may be useful to distinguish between root avulsion and extraforaminal rupture. An EMG slash nerve conduction velocity has poor reliability and often underestimates the severity of injury. Finally, ultrasound allows for assessment of joint subluxation or dislocation. Now, let's talk about Herb's palsy, which is an upper lesion involving C5-C6 in a bit more detail. This is the most common type of obstetric brachial plexopathy. As far as the mechanism, this results from lateral flexion of the head towards the contralateral shoulder with depression of the ipsilateral shoulder producing traction on the plexus. This occurs during difficult delivery in infants. Physical exam will reveal an adducted, internally rotated shoulder, pronated forearm, and an extended elbow, otherwise known as a waiter's tip. Physical exam may also reveal findings of C5 deficiency and C6 deficiency. C5 deficiency can manifest with axillary nerve deficiency, that is deltoid and teres minor weakness. C5 deficiency can also manifest with suprascapular nerve deficiency, which includes supraspinatus and infraspinatus weakness. Finally, C5 deficiency can also manifest with musculocutaneous nerve deficiency, which includes biceps and brachialis weakness. Finally, C6 deficiency will manifest with radial nerve deficiency, such as brachioradialis and supinator weakness. In terms of prognosis, obstetric brachial plexopathy has the best prognosis for spontaneous recovery. Now, let's talk about Klumpke's palsy, which is a lower lesion involving C8 and T1 nerve roots. As far as the mechanism, this is rare in obstetric palsy. However, it is usually secondary to arm presentation with subsequent traction slash abduction from the trunk. Physical exam may reveal deficit of all of the small muscles of the hand, which are innervated by the ulnar and median nerves. Physical exam may also reveal what's known as a claw hand, which will have the wrist in extreme extension because of the unopposed wrist extensors, hyperextension of the MCP joints due to loss of hand intrinsics, and flexion of the IP joints also due to loss of the hand intrinsics. In terms of prognosis of Klumpke's palsy, this has a poor prognosis for spontaneous recovery and is frequently associated with a preganglionic injury and Horner syndrome. Moving on to total plexus palsy, which involves C5 to T1 nerve roots, the mechanism involves stretch, rupture, and avulsion injury. Physical exam may reveal a flaccid arm and both motor and sensory deficits. In terms of imaging, a chest radiograph can be obtained to look for ipsilateral hemidiaphragm paralysis from phrenic nerve injury. As far as prognosis, total plexus palsy has the worst prognosis. General treatment options for obstetric brachioplexopathy can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes observation and daily passive exercises by parents. This is indicated as the first line of treatment for all obstetric brachioplexopathies while awaiting return of function. The key to treatment is maintaining passive motion while waiting for nerve function to return. Operative options include microsurgical nerve grafting and nerve transfer or neurotization. Microsurgical nerve grafting is indicated when there's lack of anti-gravity biceps function between 3 to 9 months of age. Another indication is postganglionic injury with intact nerve roots with segmental injury to the nerve. In terms of outcomes, improved outcomes are seen with shorter grafts that is defined as less than 10 centimeters. Moving on to nerve transfer or neurotization, know that nerve transfer refers to fascicles from one nerve transferred into another nerve that supplies a muscle. Neurotization refers to placing nerve fascicles directly into a neuromuscular junction of a muscle. 
As far as indications of nerve transfer or neurotization, indications include lack of anti-gravity biceps function between 3 to 9 months of age, and another indication is preganglionic injury or avulsion of the nerve roots. Now let's talk about treatment of shoulder dislocation and contractures. Operative options include soft tissue procedures and bony procedures. Soft tissue procedures include latissimus dorsi and teres major transfer, otherwise known as the Hoffer procedure, pectoralis major, plus or minus subscapularis lengthening, and arthroscopic release for internal rotation contractures. So starting with latissimus dorsi and teres major transfer, or the Hoffer procedure, this is indicated for persistent internal rotation contracture or external rotation weakness without glenohumeral dysplasia. The technique will involve passing tendons posteriorly around the humerus to create external rotation forces. A pectoralis major plus or minus subscapularis lengthening is indicated to lessen the internal rotation forces and may be used in conjunction with tendon transfers. Bony procedures include proximal humeral derotation osteotomy, otherwise known as the Wickstrom procedure, and another potential bony procedure is an arthrodesis. A proximal humeral derotation osteotomy or a Wickstrom procedure is indicated when there's persistent internal rotation contracture or external rotation weakness with glenohumeral dysplasia. An arthrodesis is indicated in the setting of a non-functional deltoid with good function of the hand and the wrist. Moving on to the treatment of elbow flexion contracture, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes serial nighttime elbow extension splinting or serial elbow extension casting. The indications for serial nighttime elbow extension splinting is for elbow flexion contracture of less than 40 degrees. As far as outcomes, this option prevents progression but does not correct contracture. Finally, serial elbow extension casting is indicated for elbow flexion contractures of greater than 40 degrees. Operative options for elbow flexion contractures include anterior capsular release as well as bicep-slash-brachialis tendon lengthening. This is indicated for severe persistent contracture. As far as outcomes, this surgical option may have high recurrence rates. Moving on to the treatment of forearm manifestations of obstetric brachial plexopathy, operative options are indicated for residual supination contracture of the forearm. Techniques can include a biceps rerouting tendon transfer, which will leave passive pronation intact. Another potential technique is forearm osteotomy with a biceps rerouting tendon transfer, which will have limited passive forearm pronation. Finally, moving on to treatment of wrist and hand manifestations of obstetric brachial plexopathy, operative options are indicated to replace function for a paralyzed muscle. Note that force is proportional to cross-sectional area of the muscle, and amplitude is proportional to the length of the muscle. Surgical techniques include certain tendon transfers, like in the setting of wrist drop, where pronator teres will be transferred to the ECRP. A tendon transfer in the setting of loss of finger extension will be FCR to FCU to EDC 2 through 5. Finally, a tendon transfer in the setting of a loss of thumb abduction will be EIP to abductor pollicis brevis. Now let's go over some complications. So initial nerve injury, for example a phrenic nerve palsy, may require diaphragm plication if persistent. Surgical complications from things like shoulder tendon transfers can include radial and axillary nerve palsies. Now, let's end this review session talking about the prognosis of obstetric brachial plexopathy. Know that 90% of cases will resolve without intervention, and spontaneous recovery may occur for up to two years. Favorable prognostic variables for spontaneous recovery includes Erb's palsy. Know that complete recovery is possible if the biceps and deltoid are anti-gravity by three months. Note that early twitch biceps activity suggests a favorable outcome. Poor prognostic variables include lack of biceps function by three months, preganglionic injuries which have the worst prognosis, 
Note that avulsions from the cord, which will not spontaneously recover function, will manifest with loss of rhomboid function, which is innervated by the dorsal scapular nerve, and may also manifest with an elevated hemidiaphragm, which is innervated by the phrenic nerve. Other poor prognostic variables include Horner syndrome, which remember is ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis, and note that less than 10% of these patients recover spontaneous motor function. Other poor prognostic variables include C7 involvement and Klumpke's palsy. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. The most common obstetric brachial plexus injury will present with which of the following deficits? And the choices are one, paralysis of deltoid and biceps with loss of wrist and digit extension. Two, paralysis of deltoid and biceps. Three, paralysis of FCR, FCU, FDS, FTP, and interossei. Four, flail extremity. And five, flail extremity, meiosis, ptosis, and anhydrosis. The correct answer to this question is one, paralysis of deltoid and biceps with loss of wrist and digit extension. So the C5, C6 levels is the most commonly affected levels in brachial plexus palsy, also known as herb Duchenne palsy. Of the given muscle actions, biceps and deltoid weakness, or C5 palsy, and loss of wrist and finger extension, or C6 palsy, would most likely be present with this injury. To quickly review, obstetric brachial plexus injuries are potentially devastating complications and are usually the result of macrosomia, shoulder dystocia, prolonged labor, and or forceps-assisted delivery. Injuries are classified into four groups using the Narakas classification. Group 1 consists of the herb Duchenne palsy, or C5-C6, and is the most common. Group 2 involves C5 to C7, also referred to as intermediate paralysis. Group 3 involves total brachial plexus paralysis, and group 4 involves total paralysis and Horner syndrome. Most injuries recover spontaneously, with biceps function returning within three months of life, portending a good prognosis. Waters reviewed the management of brachial plexus injuries. The vast majority of injuries involve C5 to C6 with 90% spontaneous recovery. The author stated that the return of biceps anti-gravity function before three months of life was a strong prognostic indicator for a full recovery. The failure of biceps function to return necessitates microsurgical repair of the injured segments with neuroma resection and sural nerve autografting with surgical repair providing a functional benefit over the natural course of the disease. Pearl et al. reviewed the management of shoulder abnormalities following obstetric brachial plexus injuries. Despite many patients recovering anti-gravity function during infancy, many will go on to develop internal rotation contractures and posterior humeral head subluxations. In order to restore a functional limb, these patients will likely require a soft tissue procedure to allow for greater external rotation and humeral head alignment in an effort to avoid glenoid dysplasia. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 2, paralysis of deltoid and biceps, is incorrect as this would be seen in an isolated C5 palsy, which is not the most common presentation. Answer 3, paralysis of FCR, FCU, FDS, FTP, and interossei are incorrect as paralysis of the wrist flexors, finger flexors, and interossei muscles present with a claw hand, which is characteristic of Klumpke's palsy. This is extremely rare in isolation with obstetric injuries. CA to T1 involvement typically occurs in conjunction with total plexus palsy. Answer 4, flail extremity, is incorrect as this suggests a total plexus involvement and has a very poor prognosis. This does not occur as frequently as Herb Duchenne palsy. 
Finally, answer five, flail extremity with meiosis, ptosis, and anhydrosis is incorrect as a flail extremity with Horner syndrome suggests nerve root evulsion of the entire brachial plexus. This has the worst prognosis and has no potential for spontaneous recovery as the injury occurs within the spinal cord. These patients will likely require nerve transfers and tendon transfers. This injury does not occur at the frequency of herb Duchenne palsy. And moving on to the final question, a mother presents to your office with her eight-day-old infant because he is holding his right arm in an odd posture. He was born by emergency C-section for shoulder dystocia but is otherwise healthy. He has one healthy older sibling. The resting posture of the arm is at the side with internal rotation and forearm pronation. Which physical exam finding by three months' time would indicate a good chance for full recovery? And the choices are 1. Active shoulder abduction, 2. Active shoulder external rotation, 3. Active elbow flexion, 4. Active shoulder flexion, and 5. Active elbow extension. The correct answer to this question is 3. Active elbow flexion. So the findings of shoulder internal rotation, lack of elbow flexion, and forearm pronation are suggestive of Herb Duchenne palsy. Active elbow flexion and biceps function is a reliable indicator of nerve recovery. To quickly review, Herb's palsy is a common injury due to birth-related trauma. The mechanism is traction on the upper brachial plexus at level C5-C6, causing disruption of the plexus fibers, less commonly nerve root avulsions. These patients present with paralysis of the shoulder abductors and external rotators, and not uncommonly the elbow flexors and wrist extensors are involved. The common position of the extremity is in an adducted, internally rotated, elbow extended, and forearm pronated position. Risk factors for brachial plexus injury include macrosomia, multiparous pregnancies, previous pregnancies with plexus injuries, and breach or difficult deliveries. Recovery is inversely correlated with concomitant neural injuries like Klumpke's palsy, which involves C8 to T1, and preganglionic nerve involvement. Initial treatment of Herb's palsy is to observe for return of biceps flexion for at least three months. If active biceps flexion returns, then full neurological recovery is expected. If active biceps flexion fails to return, then further intervention is warranted. Waters et al. detail management and treatment options for obstetric brachial plexus palsies. Their approach is to observe these individuals using biceps function as an indicator of recovery, as 90% of classic Herb's palsy will resolve. If there's a delayed recovery, investigation with advanced imaging and EMG is appropriate. For those with persistent palsies past 3 to 6 months, or those with evidence of nerve root avulsions, they recommend microsurgical reconstruction. HEMS et al. studied the natural history of 152 children with brachial plexus birth palsy prior to the availability of microsurgical reconstruction in their facility. They note recovery of elbow flexion, though delayed, in most patients with average recovery at 4 months and suggest recovery may be seen even without surgery out to 1 year. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, none of the other choices have been shown to be reliable indicators of recovery in the setting of Herb's palsy. So answer 1, active shoulder abduction, and answer 4, active shoulder flexion, are both incorrect as the deltoid innervated by the axillary nerve is responsible for shoulder abduction and flexion. Answer 2, active shoulder external rotation is incorrect as the supraspinatus and infraspinatus innervated by the suprascapular nerve produce shoulder external rotation. Finally, answer 5, active elbow extension is incorrect as the triceps innervated by the radial nerve is responsible for elbow extension which is often spared in classic Herb's palsy. That's all for this review about obstetric brachial plexopathy. Hopefully that was helpful. 
This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.